0: So, we are looking at the parable of the weeds. And, and you have um, a bulletin that was given to you as you came in. And in that bulletin is uh, the passages we're going to be looking at this morning and um, also a simple outline that we're going to be following. But, uh, but let's just jump in. So, so, I've been really excited about this series. Like, really excited. I've been doing a ton of reading and studying. One of my best friends who is the pastor at my old church he's doing the exact same series and so we've been going back and forth sharing resources texting with one another we actually did the same thing with the lord's prayer and it was just so much fun and so um life-giving for me and and i just felt like i was able to really enjoy the text that much more but friday was interesting day after thanksgiving hope everyone had a good thanksgiving that excitement all came to a screeching halt on friday morning When I turned on my computer and for some reason, and I can almost guarantee you it it was a user error, um, my entire sermon was deleted. I was just like, what? Whole thing, Friday morning, right? Now, to give credit where credit's due, I did not respond in the way I might have responded a few years ago, where I would have yelled things and got really upset. I, I did text Diana and call her and tell her how frustrated I was, but, but there are worse things that could happen. So I spent the day praying, writing, rewriting. Nothing was coming together for some reason. Then at around four o'clock, as the sun was going down, my own situation began emerging as this strange, almost comedic illustration. I walked into the office on Friday morning, ready to finish up my sermon. We had planned to get our Christmas tree that day, which we ended up doing at like nine o'clock at night. Um, It's something we do every year, the day after Thanksgiving. I don't know if anyone else has this tradition where they go the day after Thanksgiving to get their Christmas tree. We put on Charlie Brown Christmas. We have a great day. And some years we head to my family's house for Thanksgiving leftovers because what we all need is two Thanksgiving dinners. And it's everything you want to kick off the holiday season. But instead, I sat in my office frustrated that I had to be in this building for like eight or nine hours that day. And then I couldn't help but laugh to myself because this sort of captures what I want to talk about this morning. See, Advent is a season where we traditionally prepare ourselves for Christmas. Buying presents, decorating the house, trimming the tree. And for many of us, that starts right after Thanksgiving. I mean, that's when radio stations traditionally, although that's changed over the years, start playing Christmas music. Now you hear Christmas music like six months ago. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is that Advent isn't really about any of those things. And while I was planning on preaching that today to begin with, in God's providence, I also had a chance to experience it a little bit. See, Advent is the time of year in the church calendar when we are called to do three things. One, look back and reflect on the coming of our Lord Jesus. We look back. Two, we rejoice in the presence of our Lord as we meet together week in and week out to hear the word preached and to participate in the Lord's Supper. And three, to look forward to the return of Christ, where he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so this year, we will focus primarily on that third item, looking at a number of parables in Matthew's Gospel. But the hope we have in the return of Jesus only makes sense when we wrap our minds around the brokenness of this world. And so, as it says in your bulletin, Advent always begins in the dark. Fleming Rutledge said that in an article she wrote for Christianity Today back in 2019. She's done a lot of work on the subject of Advent, and one of her books that I've been reading to prepare for this series, she said something that struck me, and I have a slide for this. It says, amid the yearly frenzy of holiday time in which the commercial Christmas music insists that it's the most wonderful time of the year, we're still surrounded by the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterizes life in this present world which is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In other words, suffering isn't put on pause. Suffering isn't put on pause. We still live in a world of brokenness and pain, and every day we're reminded of that. To say that Advent always begins in the dark is to acknowledge that we live in a world that is marred by sin and brokenness. Jesus' first advent began in the dark, as Herod, in an effort to snuff out the entire kingdom, killed every male child in Bethlehem that was two years or younger. We sometimes gloss over that portion of Scripture, right? Imagine that, in the city of Bethlehem, every child, every male child two years and younger killed. Killed. And every year as we walk through the season, as excited as we might be for the holidays and for all the joy and faith that we might have in our Lord Jesus, that doesn't change the fact that we're still surrounded by pain and suffering. Just this last week, six people were killed in Wisconsin because of the horrific act of one man. Our country is still suffering from the trauma of this pandemic and the deep political division that CNN, Fox, and every social media platform is profiting from. In our own church family, we have people suffering with illness. Some of you are struggling financially. Some of your marriages are hanging on by a thread. The reality of this life, whether we belong to Jesus or not, is that sin has taken its toll on every single one of us. So let me make it clear, my goal is not to be a downer this morning. I know that might be what it appears, but like I said earlier, the only way that the, coming, the hope of the coming of the kingdom makes any sense is if we're able to wrap our minds around the brokenness of this world. There's got to be bad news if there's good news. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. There's also um, the passage in your bulletin. We're going to be looking at the parable of the weeds, verses 24 through 30. And So a little bit of context while you're getting there. Jesus had been sparring with the religious leaders... Because he had healed a man who was demon-possessed. And he did it on the Sabbath. And now he's sitting in a boat where great crowds gathered about him on the beach to hear his teaching. Chances are this is a mixed crowd of both disciples and opponents. And Jesus begins teaching through a series of parables. So let's take a look. Let's read through the text, verses 24 through 30. He says this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then then do you want us to go and gather them? Like, Like, let's go. Like, the enemy did this. Like, let's take care of business here, right? Right, master? But he said, no, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. A couple of things. A couple of things kind of jump off the page. First thing, this is a parable about, a parable about what? The kingdom of heaven. He comes right out the gate saying, this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to blank. And what is the kingdom of heaven compared to? A farmer who sows good seed in his field. Now it says that the servants were sleeping. I don't think we should necessarily see this as a bad thing. I know often as the, in the scripture sleep is, is associated with something negative. But it seems like they were just sleeping because it was nighttime. Like in the same way, if we're sleeping and someone breaks into our house, it's not our fault, right? Like someone broke in. And so like we shouldn't like blame the victim here who was sleeping at the appropriate time to be sleeping. And then the text says that the farmer's enemy, and this is a singular enemy, sowed, seed, sowed weeds. And these weeds are most likely referring to a specific weed called darnel, which looks exactly like wheat until the ears of grain appear. And darnell is a poisonous weed, and eating it could actually be fatal. So that's important to kind of keep in the back of your head. And so it appears between verses 24 and 26 that there's a duration of time because no one noticed anything until the plants came up and bore grain. And at this point, the servants are confused. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Like, why are there weeds? Like, what did you do? I thought you sowed good seed. And this is really interesting. Verse 28. See, the master doesn't hesitate. He seems to know exactly what happened. An enemy has done this. Very clearly, he says, an enemy has done this. So let's pause here for a second. Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to a man who sowed good seed. And while his servants were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. And the owner of the field, after hearing about the weeds from his servants, doesn't appear to be surprised in the least. It's almost as if he knew this was going to happen. He anticipated this. See, this is, this is how evil kind of works. And, and I know I'm kind of giving away the story a little bit that, that the, the weeds are, are evil, but we'll get to that in a second. But this is kind of how evil works. See, see God's not blinded to the fact that evil exists or that evil is entering into our world. Even if we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, I don't think we should be be wondering, like, God, where were did you not know? Of course God knew what was happening. See, we believe God is all-knowing. He's omniscient, as, as theologians like to say. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. So this doesn't take God by surprise that evil or weeds are creeping into his field. In fact, it seems like it makes perfect sense to him. And you know what else is interesting? He doesn't seem too concerned about it. Now, mind you, when, when weeds pop up in, in our field or our grass or whatever it is we're trying to do in our gardens, that's something that, that might concern some of us. For those of you who are experiencing gardening, it, it doesn't concern you, right? You go out, you pluck the weeds, it's not a big deal. But for inexperienced gardeners, or inexperienced homeowners, as they see weeds popping up, are probably like, well, what am I supposed to do now? I planted grass seed. I don't know what's going on. Why are these weeds growing? I didn't plant weeds. And we start to get a little concerned. But, but this particular farmer, he's, he's like not concerned. He's like, oh yeah, I'll take care of it. I'll take care. It's not a big deal. We'll wait till the end. We'll wait till the end. And in fact, he says, you know, let them grow together. No big deal. Just let them grow together. It says in verse 28, the servants want to take some initiative. Right? We should pat them on the back, right? Look, these are good servants. They want to do the right thing. Do you want us to go and gather them? They're probably like, yeah, I can picture, it, right? They come together, guys, guys. I got a plan, right? Let's go to the master and let's let him know we'll take care of it. We'll gather them up. We'll we'll pull them out and we'll take care of it. And the master responds, Nope. I don't want you to do that. Because, because the master knows something. He knows that in gathering them, it'll actually do more harm than good. So he says, let both grow together until the harvest. This is the key moment in the parable. This is a key moment. We need to pause, right? Let both grow together. The word let means let it be, like, like the Beatles song, Let It Be. I don't know if any of you guys are watching that incredible documentary. Neither here nor there. Let it be, leave it alone, allow or tolerate. It could mean leave, as in depart or abandon a situation or a place, but it can also mean forgive. It's interesting where it's a loaded term. It's a loaded term. And typically when you have a loaded term, when you read that term, especially if you read it in the original language that it was written, and especially if you think in the original language, you hear that term, it kind of sends off little buzzers in your head. It's like, oh, that means that, 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 and that. And you don't even know you're doing it. It just kind of happens. It just, it's just kind of implants in your head. So, so they're sitting there like, well, forgive, let it be. It's not a big deal. So, so I'm, I'm not going to over-interpret here. But it does seem that Jesus is instructing the servants to settle down and let it be. Let it be. So what's the point? Well, while the servants appear to have a plan to eradicate the work of the enemy, the farmer lets them know that he'll take care of it. He says, I will tell my reapers at harvest time to gather the weeds first to be burned. And so one, the servants are really concerned. They want to do something about it immediately. But two, the farmer has a plan and he decides patience is the best path forward. One author says it like this. The farmer has in mind some grander strategy. One that involved not fighting a minor battle against temporary inconveniences, but winning an entire war once and for all against his enemy. But our story continues. It picks up after he tells a few other parables in verse 36. Then the righteous will shine, the third point in our outline. After Jesus was finished, it says he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the so- this good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels." And so I think it's interesting. A couple observations before we look at the rest of the text. Verses 36 through 39. The first thing that comes out of the mouth of the disciples is what? Explain to us the parable of what? The weeds. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So one author makes makes an extremely important observation. I have a slide for this. That we need to take to heart because I think... We're more like those early disciples than we are comfortable admitting. He says the disciples managed to turn the parable into something else. Jesus told it as a story of a kingdom that was like a man who sowed good seed in his field and then had weeds sown it by his enemy. But they heard it as a story about weeds, period. What he gave them was a judiciously balanced analogy of the complex relationship between good and evil, but what they received was an out-of-whack fable about the problem of evil alone. I think this is so interesting. I think this is what we do. I think that we as, as Christians in particular who love righteousness, who love what is good, who love our God and want to serve him and glorify him in every single thing we say, do, and think, the thing that we need, we need an enemy. We need someone that we can point to and say, they're the problem. That's what we see kind of unraveling in this text. The servants are, are looking around saying, the weeds are the problem. Meanwhile, the master's saying, the weeds aren't the problem. The enemy is the problem. Do you see the difference here? Do you see the difference here that's, that's kind of slowly emerging in this text? We are so obsessed with the weeds that we forget that they were born from a seed that was planted by the enemy. And we're so obsessed with condemning and killing and destroying the weeds that we forget that there's one who's actually planting those seeds and wreaking havoc. And you know what's so interesting about this parable? The enemy simply plants the weeds and he's nowhere to be found. He's out. Why? Because he knows that all of us, both the good seeds and the weeds, are going to do just a fine job of messing everything up on our own. Because we're fighting the wrong battle. We're fighting the wrong battle. Let's keep going here, right? He he identifies the characters, right? The farmer is the son of man, this is Jesus. There's some Daniel backdrop here. We're not going to get into that this morning. The field is the world. I think that's important that we note that. The field is the world. It's not the church. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons and daughters of the evil one. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So the text continues, verses 40 through 43. Let's read. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. Again, another allusion to Daniel. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus explains what's going on. He says that the weeds, or the sons and daughters of the evil one, that they will be gathered up at the end of the age, the harvest. And notice that the ones who are doing the gathering, they're not the servants. They're not the good seed. They're the angels. And their job is to purify the kingdom by removing all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Judgment is coming and so too is vindication. What's important here? What's important here? This parable and its interpretation seems to indicate that evil is here until the end. Like, to break the news to all of us, we are going to be dealing with evil, with weeds, with sin, and sinners until the end of the age, until the harvest. And so what we need to understand, what we really need to wrap our minds around, is how do we endure in the midst of it? How do we cling to Christ in the midst of this evil age that we're living in? That's the question we need to be wrestling with. The second thing is that this parable also seems to indicate that the problem of evil is not something to be solved by the servants nor by the good seed. Rather, this parable teaches us that judgment belongs to God and God alone. And he is the one who will administer justice at the end of the age. I can't stress how important that is for us as Christians. I can't stress how important that is for us who are good seeds, those who have bent our knee to King Jesus, who have put our faith in the, the cross and resurrection of Almighty King Jesus. I can't stress the importance of that. That we must not mistaken ourselves for the angels who administer judgment at the end of the age because of the command of the Son of Man. That's not our gig right now. That's not our gig right now. So what is our gig? Well, as those who have been called to watch and wait, we are instructed to let both grow together, to live lives of forgiveness, of grace, of remembering that we too, apart from the tender mercy of our God, once stood at enmity with God. We stand against evil with weapons of love, mercy, compassion, grace, and forgiveness. The same weapons which were used upon us that brought us into the family of God. For it was the kindness of God that led to repentance. The kindness of God that led to repentance. I don't think any of us in this room came to faith because someone was screaming at us, telling us that we're dirty, rotten sinners and we're going to hell in a handbasket. I don't think that's how it happened. I don't think that's how it happened. It's the tender love and mercy of our God and God's people that fold us into the kingdom. The kindness of God leads to repentance. Every time I see that show up, every time I read that in Acts, I believe it's in Acts. If I'm wrong, I'll correct myself. Every time that pops up, I'm like struck to the heart. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the kindness of God leads to repentance. But we have a weird history, a weird church history, where, where we, we maybe even in our, in our literature classes growing up, we read sermons like Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And, and again, I'm not, I, want, I don't want to shoot arrows at Jonathan Edwards. He's a great theologian. There's a lot that maybe we shouldn't dis- like aspire to with Jonathan Edwards. But, but okay, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, that's true. But that doesn't seem to be the way Jesus preaches the gospel. It doesn't mean we, we don't talk about sin. That's not what I'm saying. I, I want to be clear. We, we talk about sin. But I think where we most importantly should be dealing with sin is among the family of God. Like, who within our midst is struggling with sin? And struggling's key, right? Because we want to build up one another. We don't want to shoot people down. And so God is calling us to be agents of grace in this world ambassadors of the kingdom ministers of reconciliation the bible talks about not an army with bazookas and shotguns blowing people away with bible bullets right like that's not what we're called to as followers of jesus but yet it is what we're tempted to as followers of jesus for some reason it's not for some reason the reason is is because we really do love righteousness So the motives are not entirely impure. We love God so much. And we want to glorify him so much. And we have ambition like those servants. We have a plan. We want to to rid the world of weeds, right? But we forget that we too were once a weed. We forget that we too were on the receiving end of those bombs and those guns and those bullets. I want to read something from Romans chapter 3. Verses 21 through 31, it says this, and I have a slide for this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, We like that verse. We've used that before. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then, what becomes of our boasting? It's really important. It's excluded. But by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So a couple things stand out in that passage, and we're not going to do a deep dive into it, but a few things... Questions I want to kind of throw out to us. Have we forgotten that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law? Has it slipped our minds that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Are we struggling to remember that all includes every single one of us? And that our justification came by his grace as a gift. And that it was in his divine forbearance that he passed over former sins. See, Paul makes the point in verse 27, which might very well be the main point of the passage, that any sort of boasting or self-congratulations is excluded. It's excluded. And and boasting, I think, sometimes shows up in, in a variety of ways. Like, I don't think anyone's walking around saying, like, I'm a Christian. Look at me. I'm a Christian. Pretty sweet, right? I'm a Christian. Right? I don't think that's what's happening, right? I don't think that's what we do. But what boasting sometimes shows up as is, is, is this judgment towards those who are not, is this judgment towards those who, who maybe practice a different type of Christianity from a different tradition than we do, and, our, and the judgment that falls upon people we declare as sinners, as Gentiles, right? That's where the boasting shows up. Where we literally kind of kind of put this, this dividing line in the sand between us and them. Now don't get me wrong. There is an us and a them. There are people who believe and people who do not. But guess what? We were all on that other side of the line at one point. And that's what Paul's getting at here. We have all been weeds. There is no room for boasting. And the one who judges is God, and he's sending his angels to do it. And we are not the ones he's sending to do it, at least in this life. That's massively important. Paul asked the question, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? The Gentiles were the sinners of Paul's day, the ones who were on the outside. Who are on the outside today? Who are your outsiders? Who do we declare as unclean? Whoever fits into that category for you, Paul says in his letter to Corinth, such were some of you, such were some of us. We've all made our bed in that world at some point or another. It's really important, Redeemer. That's really important. And so the point is, is that this parable teaches us that evil will be with us till kingdom come. We're not going to change it. And to be honest, it's not really our job to. Our job is to cling to Jesus, love God, love neighbor, and proclaim the good news that Jesus is king and that in him is the forgiveness of sins. We are not judge, jury, and executioner. We are the good seed, and seed is meant to bear fruit. And we bear fruit when we live in light of the hope of the resurrection and the coming of our Lord Jesus, by by performing good works for the world around us, by proclaiming the good news of King Jesus, and living in a way that shows the world what God is like. So it means to be a Christian. We're the good seed. We're the good seed. And so what does this all have to do with Advent? right? Because this is supposed to be an Advent series, and I feel like I haven't really mentioned that yet. Well, I think it has everything to do with Advent, because as we watch and wait in the midst of the poisonous weeds of this world, we must remember that, one, we were once numbered among the weeds. I mean, I know I've stressed that a lot this morning. We were once numbered among the weeds. Two, it was the kindness and compassion of the king and the good seed that transformed us. Three, how we are called to live between the first and second advent is to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. Some of those those neighbors might be numbered among the weeds. Our job's not to stand in judgment over them. That's God's job. He'll deal with it. Our job is to love, love, and love some more. To forgive more times than we're able to count. I think that's important. We just went through the Lord's Prayer. We talked about, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation. The temptation, I think, for many of us is to not forgive. Is to hold people to the standard of being a Christian when they're not a Christian. We have to love, love, and love some more. Forgive 70 times 7. We're not called to clean people up before they come into the family of God. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We are to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to live our lives in a way that shows the world what God is like. This is the hope of the coming kingdom. See, Jesus cried out from the cross, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. To be quite frank, sinners don't know what they're doing. What they need is grace. Jesus is the only hope we have. He's the only hope the weeds have. He's the king, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So as we think of Advent, as we consider both the first coming of our Lord and we anticipate the future coming of our Lord. Our job as followers of our King, as we watch and wait, is to live in light of that hope, to live in light of the good news. We are forgiven by God's grace. And we need to extend that grace. We need to love God. We need to love neighbor. We need to love neighbor tangibly. And we need not to be concerned that their their uncleanness might get on us because that's not how it works. That's not how it works. We have the righteousness of Almighty God. That's good news. So we need to be good news people, extending that grace, extending that love, extending that mercy, so that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we love you so much. Lord, this was a tough text for me this week. I like good guys and bad guys. But Father, I know that you saved me. I know that I was not deserving of your grace, Lord. None of us are deserving of your grace. I know where I've been. I know what I've done. I know what I've thought about. But Father, your good grace and the Beautiful work of your son Jesus on the cross and his resurrection saved me, forgave me of my sins, folded me into this beautiful family of God, Lord God. Father, that's all of our truth if we have bent our knee to your son Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would be ministers of reconciliation in this world, Lord God, in this dark, broken world. Advent began in the dark for all of us, Lord God. Because we were once in the dark and now we have been transferred to the kingdom of his glorious light, Lord God. I thank you so much for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.